This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. On a balmy September day in 1886... The desert horizon is ablaze with the setting sun. A group of Apache fighters, led by Geronimo, a military leader of the Duncahe Band, approaches a U.S. forces encampment, their heads held high despite their profound weariness. A hero of indigenous resistance, Geronimo has eluded U.S. forces for years, but relentless pursuit and enduring hardships have taken their toll. Recognizing the futility of further resistance, Geronimo and his band have chosen to negotiate. It is time to start a new kind of existence. It's time for a new life. Don Wildman here, and this is American History Hit. Thanks for listening. Our subject today is a series of military conflicts between U.S. forces and indigenous warriors whose native lands were located within a vast region of what is today northern New Mexico to southeastern Arizona all the way east to Texas. This was generally the realm of the Apache. A legendary name, one we will soon discuss, was first attached to these native peoples by invading Spanish inclusive of a number of indigenous groups, from the Jicarilla to the Lepan to the Mescalero and many others. They were all, by virtue of this general location, called Apache by the Spanish, then the Mexicans, then settlers and military from the U.S. And as with most Native American groups across the continent, their relationships with white people shifted and evolved over time. But come the mid-1800s, after the Mexican-American War, relations between the victorious U.S. and the native tribes known as Apache would soon turn acrimonious and deadly. It was a lengthy chapter of history commonly known as the Apache Wars and took place in the last half of the 19th century, involving some of the most storied names of the American West, like Cochise and Geronimo. And we're joined by Western author and historian Douglas Hocking, who has authored a number of texts, including Black Legend, George Bascom, Cochise, and the Start of the Apache Wars, as well as Tom Jeffords, Friend of Cochise. Welcome, Doug Hocking. Nice to have you here. Oh, thanks for having me, Don. Doug, you grew up on the Hickoria Apache Reservation in north central New Mexico, if I'm right. But I saw that you're originally from a fabled land called Long Island. 
<laughs> yes, I don't know. Some folks will have heard of Levittown, and I have to tell them my yes, dad exactly. built it. There you are. <laughs> Before we get into this intricate history, I want to straighten out what I've already screwed up. When we hear the word Apache, what exactly does it mean and how did it originate? Nobody really knows where the term came from. The closest thing we've ever found is in the uh, Zuni language. Uh, that's a Pueblo, a village tribe from a little south of Gallup, New Mexico, west of Albuquerque, if you like. And it's a word in their language that means enemy. Apart from that, the people call themselves some version of Nde. Today, my Hickoria friends call themselves Abachi. I mentioned that this conflict, the Apache Wars, begins after the Mexican-American War, 1846 into the 48. But these groups have been battling incursions into their region for centuries at this point, from conquistadors to the Mexicans, and, and I suppose even among themselves, right? Fighting is a way of life in this world. Yeah, and it, it becomes more so as the horse changes culture and the plains mm -hmm. that were empty become occupied by the famous horse cultures, the Cheyenne, the Hickorya Apache, for that matter, who were buffalo hunters, the Lipan, Mescalero, to some extent, were buffalo hunters. The Comanche, they get horses and they come from the Great Basin and pass through the Ute and Hickorya into Texas. And then after 1836, the Texans are pushing them westward back into the Hickorya. So, we now have a conflict over resources. People who hunted and gathered and did a little farming now have to take up raiding in a big way to supplement their need for food. And if we can add to that, the Hickorya, their territory was basically the last third of the Santa Fe Trail. So Americans were coming right through them after 1822, and naturally there were conflicts. The Apache would come in and steal a little bit of, of livestock and upset people, and there would be fights over that. Sure. And then for the Chiricahua especially, they're on the 32nd degree corridor. The Rocky Mountains have two great gaps. One is South Pass, way up in Wyoming. That's where the Oregon-California Trail passes through. Problem is, it's frozen about half the year. And then down here, the 32nd degree corridor was the corridor for the railroad, and it became the corridor for the Butterfield Overland Mail. In addition to everything else, we've got thousands of Americans passing through Apache country. Yeah. And there was bound to be conflict over that. The chronology of all of this is really important to consider. They are in contested lands before the Mexican-American War, because Mexico is always figuring out how it's going to run all this land up, up above. It's already been, like I said, a way of life up there, figuring out what's to do with all these people coming in and, and invading our territory. During this period of time, certainly during the Mexican-American War, we were the good guys in quotation marks, they were allying with us against the Mexicans who had yes. by that time for years been the enemy. All that sort of changes uh, after we win and the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo gives us all this land. Why was it such a complete shift at that point? Why were we suddenly the enemy, the adversaries? 
I would say it was not so much suddenly as gradually. And one of the things that triggers this, let's talk about the, the Mexicans and the Spanish before them. Spanish New Mexico extended from Socorro to Taos and about 10 miles east of the Rio Grande, just a tiny mm-hmm. bit west of the Rio Grande. Taos, Santa Fe, Albuquerque are all east of the Rio Grande. The Navajo and the Hickoria and the Ute kept them compressed into this area. Mm. There was a gap, some called the Journey of the Dead Man, uh, Jornada del Muerto, between El Paso and Socorro that was basically unoccupied. Further west, we had the Presidios, which barely touched southern Arizona. At the time of the Mexican-American War, you barely got 500 people along the Santa Cruz River, Tubac and Tucson, which were established in 1750 and 1775. And then the Presidios, which are a little bit further south. There's an old Presidio near me from 1680, excuse me, not 1680, 1770, that lasted five years, considering that the garrison was about... 35 men, and in five years, they lost 70 men and five commanders. The Apache Mm, kept them in check. Apache country is pretty much empty. The Spanish are controlling them very often by trying to get them to farm and by feeding them, giving them supplemental rations. And this goes off and on. They'll war with them for a while, and then they'll feed them for a while. The Mexicans come in, and from the start, Mexico is dead broke. They can't afford to do anything. They can't afford soldiers. They can't afford to feed the Apaches. Chihuahua and Sonora have different programs. Uh, Very often, they're feeding them in Chihuahua, telling them, go raid in Sonora. Uh, Mm. And Sonora is doing the same thing. And then in the 1740s, they start hiring people like James Kirker former mountain man who has got a band of about 50 mercenaries, about half of whom, believe it or not, are Delaware Native Americans, which Mm. gets interesting because the Delaware were a people pushed west. Their subtribal names have names like Canarsie, which is a neighborhood in Brooklyn, New York City, and Rockaway, which is Queens, New York, right? And they've been getting pushed west they become the guys who teach the mountain men how to hunt beaver. And they're in with the mountain men. Half of Kirker's group of mercenaries is Native Americans. And Kirker takes a contract to hunt for Apache scalps. And he's had various contracts, mostly with Chihuahua. We're going to exterminate the Hickoria. He's going to go out and take their scalps. Problem is that Kirker's unscrupulous. At one point, he goes all the way north to Taos and attacks the Hickoria. At another point, the Mexicans are easier to prey on. But in any event, Kirker and Johnson and others like them set for very bad relations in the 1840s between Americans and uh, the Apache. But mostly this is happening to subgroups of Apache who are in Chihuahua and Sonora. And then in the United States, the big change after the Mexican-American War is that suddenly we've got 50,000 Americans passing through on their way to California, the 49 gold rush. 
And that's when go. we start getting some really negative interactions. For the purposes of this subject matter, the Apache Wars, it really begins in 1861 with what is known as the Bascom Affair. It begins with the kidnapping of a young boy named John Ward, 12 years old. Can you describe this event and how it sparks the greater conflict? I would say that it did not spark the greater conflict. It sparked a handful of revenge killings. And one of the reasons that those got as out of hand as they did was because of the other things that were going on. The accounts of the Bascom Affair that have gone into our first history books accidentally because one fellow who wasn't there came back to Arizona and made up a story with himself as the hero, the wise sergeant, the stubborn lieutenant. And when you consider that Bascom was 7th Infantry from Fort Buchanan and Reuben Bernard was 1st Dragoons, a cavalryman from a station 90 miles to the north, you begin to see how ridiculous this tale is. So the boy is taken. This is reported at Fort Buchanan. Bascom is sent out to find the trail. He initially cannot locate it. My guess is he was looking along Sienega Creek north of Fort Buchanan, which is the way the Western Apache would usually return home. Who was George Bascom? Bascom was a lieutenant, soon to be captain, 7th Infantry, West Point graduate. He had been with the 7th Infantry for three years, and he was commander of Company C. After he finds the trail, it leads eastward. And in their experience, Apaches going eastward were always Cherokees. He returns to the post. His commander sends him out with all of the men of Company C, and along with him goes Johnny Ward, the boy's stepfather, as interpreter. Hmm. Yeah, that's the first big problem. And keep in mind, Bascom didn't pick on Cochise at random. They all believed that Cochise was responsible. The problem was the location of uh, Fort Breckenridge, which had just opened up in October 1860. The Dragoons, two companies of them, were now patrolling the lower San Pedro River. That's north. And everybody was going into Chiricahua country to, to get home. So the Cherokee were getting blamed for things Western Apache were doing. In any event, he was sent to Cochise. Bascom tells us that when they talked, Cochise says, I haven't got the boy, but I think I know who does. Give me 10 days, I'll go and get him. Johnny Ward translates this. Bascom implies that he said, okay, go and get the boy. Cochise now jumps up, pulls out his knife, cuts the strings binding the tent flap, screams to his people to run. Mm. Yeah. And we have a camp with 66 soldiers. Cochise makes it out, but everybody else runs into a soldier. So now he's got Cochise's wife, two young boys, and three warriors that are accidental captives of Bascom. How did Cochise make it out? Well, the only person who fired on him initially was Johnny Ward. The soldiers have muzzle loaders. The only way to unload them is to fire them. That's not a good thing to waste your ammunition. Bascom's got his men, his sentries, patrolling with fixed bayonets without ammunition. Cochise is way up the hillside before anybody gets a weapon loaded. They only fire four shots after it. We know that partly because we found the bullets 
But that, that's another story. This event is apocryphally, I guess, indicated as the beginning of what becomes really decades of conflicts. Obviously, it can't be the only thing responsible. What is being fought out in what we call the Apache Wars? How do you define that greater conflict? The greater conflict is that Americans are moving west. They're starting to find mineral riches in Apache country. It's a major corridor for westward migration and eventually for the railroad. And that's the source of partly starving the Apaches. Let me give the upshot of the, the Bascom affair. Cochise comes in to parlay. He ends up taking a captive of his own. He then attacks a wagon train and gets three more captives. He murders his captives eventually. Negotiations break down probably by accident, an unrelated event. A company of the 8th Infantry marching along what is now I-10, not knowing Bascom's situation, but the Apache take it as, oh, they're trying to surround us. And they kill their hostages and leave. And Bascom is joined by four other officers who are senior to him, and one of them suggests hanging the hostages that they have. And Bascom says, that's not a good idea. Let's let Colonel Morrison be responsible for this. We'll take them to him. And the fellow in, in question says, well, I took three of them. I'm going to hang my three. The man in charge, Lieutenant Moore, senior officer present, does not do anything to stop this. So they hang six adult male hostages. And that sparks some retribution from Cochise. But to understand what's mm -hmm. really going on, you've got to go back a couple of months to events on the East Coast. November 1860, Lincoln gets elected. Immediately, states start to secede from the Union. February, the army is going to go out and punish the Apache for killing the hostages. And the orders come from Santa Fe. Stay put. We're going to have a big expedition in the spring. Save your ammunition and your supplies. This expedition never comes off because of what's happening in Washington. Between November and March, when Lincoln takes office, there are no orders coming from Washington. Nobody knows what to do. Nobody is patrolling against the Apaches because the orders are, wait. In the meantime, one officer after another is resigning his commission and going east to become a Confederate general. Actually, most of them became colonels initially. They were experienced officers in the South, needed them. The Overland Mail is withdrawn in March, not because of anything that happened at Apache Pass, but because it runs through Arkansas and Texas, which are now in the Confederacy, and the Union can't be sure the mail's going to get through. Eventually, the army is pulled back to the Rio Grande to fight Texans, and now the Apaches are free to do whatever they like. Boy, there's a lot going on, isn't there? Oh, yeah. And it's the background, not the Bascom affair, that's the background. That's the problem. It's what's going on in the background. Yeah. The war lasts for 12 years with Cochise because in the interim, 
Arizona becomes made a Confederate territory and then a Union territory. And the Union ter territory headquarters is at a new gold strike at Prescott, way to the north. And there is no attention on southern Arizona until the 1870s. It's just left alone. Hmm. The mail doesn't even resume until 1867. They don't go after the Chiricahuas until 1872. And that's where Tom Jeffords comes in. O.O. Howard has authority from the president to make a treaty with Cochise. I'll be back with more American history after this short break. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Tell me about General George Crook, brought to this area to fix the Apache problem. What is his approach? Well, his first time is in 1869. He's brought in and he comes in at the area around Prescott. He's a man who believes in pack mules and not wagons, which is a good thing in this country where there aren't many roads. And he believes in using Apache scouts. So mm -hmm. he hires Apaches to scout for him against Apaches. And they know where the Apaches are likely to be, where they're apt to retreat to. And so he's able to work his way through the Apaches. And he puts the Western Apache and the Yavapai, who, although not Apache, are identified with them and are on some of the same reservations. He puts the Western Apache on a series of reservations stretching from the Teal and um, up in Prescott, Camp Verde, and on down uh, Fort McDowell on the Verde River, and finally San Carlos. And so he gets the Apaches in there while Cochise is still at war. And he's on his way to see Cochise when O.O. Howard intervenes as personal representative of the president and tells Crook to stop. But yes, his approach is to use Apache against Apache to let them guide him to where the Apache will be. 
That's so much the story of how the U.S. really dealt with so many different groups throughout the West, this sort of divide and conquer by setting them up against each other. Something that had already been happening, of course, as different tribes had different adversaries, but we definitely exacerbated the situation to our own end. Tell me about Geronimo's entry into all of this. Probably the most famous name of all native warriors in the American West story, right? Yeah. I hope I don't disappoint you, Don. My encounters with Geronimo are finding him in the 1850s leading failed war parties, which basically rules an Apache out of leadership. He's blasted two war parties. Nobody's going to follow him. Hughes, who was Jefford's secretary on the reservation in the 1880s, the newspapers were all touting Geronimo. And Hughes goes, Geronimo? That guy? Oh, okay. <laughs> Geronimo was most definitely not a leader of any kind. The Apache, what we've got is men of influence, men who've led successful war parties. People want to follow mm -hmm. them. Guys with wisdom, people want to live near them. So what we're talking about is influence and neighborhood and not anything that we could define as a tribe. But we need a tribe mm -hmm. so we can make reservations. Geronimo is a big mouth. Geronimo is the guy who's always complaining. Geronimo hmm. is the guy who always stands up in council and has something to say. And the press hmm. picks up on this. So Geronimo becomes their important guy when, in fact, hmm. the actual leaders are other people. They just focus on him. If you ask the Cherokee today, they don't think of him as a hero. They think him as the guy who got us deported to Florida. Over the course of about 30 years, the Apache Wars take place. It's hard to define exactly what it means in terms of battle lines. It's not that kind of thing. These are skirmishes. These are you know, battle lines for retributions and so forth, revenge killings. Right. Um, all this goes on for about 30 years. How does it wrap up and what's the takeaway from the Apache Wars? Yeah. So 1861 to 72. Cochise is fighting the Americans. 72, he goes on the reservation. And they're there until 76. And then there's an incident possibly prompted by Geronimo. And they decide to move them to San Carlos. San Carlos is not their home country. Apache lived 5,000 to 7,000 feet. And this is low country. We're talking 2,000 to 3,000 feet. It's hot. It's dry. And the Western Apache have been there since 69. They're well established. And they come in and the Cherokee get the worst of everything. And there are constant problems until the early 80s. And then the Cherokee are going, we've had enough. We're leaving. Mm -hmm. And they head out. And that lasts until 86, when the last of the Cherokee are finally deported to Florida. They tried it with the Hickoria, putting them on the Mescalero Reservation, where the Mescalero were already established. That didn't work. And again, they tried it with the Chiricahua, put them in with the Western Apache, who were not their friends, who were established on the land, and try to get them, get that to work. And that doesn't work. So that really kicks off the last round of the Apache Wars. And then on top of everything else, the biggest towns between, we're told, between St. Louis and San Francisco, 
big mining towns, and they're in Chiricahua country. Suddenly, we've got a whole lot of people in here, and so there's a whole lot of conflict, and it's really very small groups of Chiricahua that are just driving them. Eventually, as you've mentioned, these uh, groups are forced onto reservations. Can you explain the reservation system, which we still live with today? How did it work? You even grew up on one, right? Oh, yes, indeed. It's interesting. The Hickoria chose the land, and it was denied to them three times. And finally, they went to the governor and said, what if we become settlers and stop being a tribe? Can we go homestead? And the governor said, yeah, I think so. So they took off and suddenly the army's after them, but the government relented and said, you can have that land now. Anyway, that's how that worked for the Icaria. But really the, the whole thing starts in the early uh, 19th century. As we're pushing people westward, there is a frontier line. And this is an actual line that the government draws and said, no settlers beyond this line. You can't go mm-hmm. here. You can pass through on trails but you cannot settle here. And the line Mm -hmm. keeps getting pushed back, the Mississippi and Missouri River, and then it's the western edge of Missouri and so on. And that's the beginning of the reservations. Throughout this period, there are Native American agencies and the agencies are a place to draw rations and supplies, controlled trade, and where settlers and Native American can go to raise complaints about each other. So the idea of the frontier becomes this defining element. Beyond that very movable line are the lands that are traditionally belonging to these these indigenous groups. But that's the trick, is that once the line moves, so do the reservations, right? That's the the essence of the violated treaties and so forth. How does this work down in the, the Southwest? Because there isn't so much settlement going on until the mining begins, right? Is that why they end up with these more these larger, more stable reservations? Or am I wrong about that? The frontier defined land that was reserved. And then as they found other land that they wanted, they said, we'll reserve this land to you. Live as you want on that land. It's your reserve. Uh, And Mm -hmm. these kept getting smaller. In the Southwest, we'd finally push people back to where they couldn't go any further. And the land won't support as many people as lands further east do. Yes. So reservations, larger reservations were carved out to accommodate them just because they needed that much land to more or less survive. And it's less desirable land and for white settlers. You've got California <laughs> further down the path there, and everybody's heading out there, I guess. Well, let me tell you a little about California. Kit Carson had been there okay. 1846-47 with Fremont, and he went back to New Mexico, and after the gold rush starts, 53 Kit puts together a huge herd of sheep and takes them to California to feed the 49ers. And he is appalled by what he sees. There are hardly any more Native Americans. The 49ers have been slaughtering them. He's just shocked how many of them have disappeared. So how do we wrap up? Through the 19th century, honest people said, we've got two choices. We can exterminate them or we can feed them. 
and the government uh, went back and forth between both policies. The reservations were part of the system of feeding them, and they kept them on starvation rations. I mean, the government didn't want to spend the money on them, and it was tough on Native Americans as well because he came, became dependent on the government instead of getting out and uh, developing ways to earn a living. The Hickoria were the last tribe to get a reservation. 1887, everyone was afraid of them. Yeah. They finally did. They avoided what came out of the Dawes Act, where they said, well, every adult's going to get 80 acres, and the surplus land will be sold off to benefit the tribe. Looking around, you look at these big reservations, and a lot of them have been sold off. There's still reservation land, mm -hmm. but the best land is occupied by whites. This didn't happen to the Hickoria because they were so late in the game. And finally, they had a good agent who said, look, this isn't land that they can really cultivate. We could run stock on it, but it's too cold in the winter. President Teddy Roosevelt doubled the size of the reservation, giving them lowlands where they could run the stock in winter. The Hickoria then had to get congressional permission to cut their forests, to sell lumber so they could mm. buy sheep. This was done, and they had to go back to Congress and get permission to spend the money to buy the sheep. First, it was permission to cut the lumber, and then it was permission to use their money to buy the sheep. Mm. And Congress sat on this for 10 years, and at the same time, they cut rations. They said, all those young men ought to be working. We're not going to give them rations anymore. Not realizing that there was no place for them to go to find work. In this period, half the tribe dies out. They die out by disease brought on by starvation. And finally, in 1920s, they get permission to spend their money to buy sheep, and they become very successful ranchers. I don't know. Government dependence, our little brother, we have to look out for him, take care of him because he's too ignorant to take care of himself, which is yep. nonsense. But it's exactly how the government acted in between trying to starve them to death or exterminate them. It's the story of so many of these groups and the rather depressing fate of dealing with suddenly becoming part of this country that sort of envelops them and says, you're in or you're out abide by the laws, and here they are, and it completely changed the way of life that, that they were used to living. Doug Hocking is the author of Black Legend, George Bascom, Cochise, and the Start of the Apache Wars, as well as another volume called Tom Jeffords, Friend of Cochise. You can find him all over the internet. I did. All sorts of interviews, and very colorful man, great historian. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it, Doug. Well, thank you for having me, Don. Thanks for listening to American History Hit. You know, every week we release new episodes, two new episodes dropping Mondays and Thursdays. From mysterious missing colonies to powerful political movements to some of the biggest battles across the centuries, don't miss an episode. By hitting like and follow, you help us out, which is great, but you'll also be reminded when our shows are on. And while you're at it, please share with a friend. American History Hit with me, Don Wildman. So grateful for your support. Thanks so much.
Thank you for listening to this episode of American History Hit. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you'll also get your first three months for just $1 a month when you use code AmericanHistory at checkout.